This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. A president, if it was President Trump elected again, would use every ounce of that power and find new power. That would be a serious, serious test for our democratic system. Welcome to Politicology. I'm Ron Steslow. And this is our weekly roundup, where we invite a rotating panel of experts to discuss the truth you need to know behind the most important stories of the week and how they're shaping the political landscape. And on today's outstanding panel, returning to the roundup is Frank Sadler. Frank is the chief of staff at Carly Fiorina Enterprises. He also served as the campaign manager for Carly's 2016 presidential campaign and was an advisor to former U.S. Senator George Allen of Virginia. Frank, as always, great to have you back. Welcome back. Thanks for having me. Also returning to the roundup is Andy Kroll. Andy is an investigative reporter for ProPublica, where he covers voting, politics, and threats to democracy. He's the former Washington bureau chief for Rolling Stone magazine and has written for Mother Jones, National Journal, and the California Sunday Magazine. He's also the author of A Death on W Street, The Murder of Seth Rich and the Age of Conspiracy. Andy, welcome back. Thanks for making the time. Great to be back as always. So up first this week, we're going to discuss Donald Trump's notice that he's likely to be indicted for a third time, this time for his role in the events of January 6th. Then we're going to look at a New York Times article about how Donald Trump and his allies would remake the executive branch if they returned to power. Next, we'll discuss HHS's decision to halt funding for the Wuhan Institute of Virology and the open questions about the origins of COVID-19. And then finally, for our Politicology Plus subscribers, Molly McHugh is going to join us to discuss the latest developments in the war on Ukraine and what the end of a critical grain deal could mean for Ukraine and the world. We talked about that a while back as it was breaking. This is a really important story. To get ad-free access to the show, plus many more special episodes on a private podcast feed, head over to politicology.com slash plus or click the link at the top of today's show notes. And we will dig in right after this. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Well, the legal troubles keep coming for Donald Trump. Over the weekend, he received a target letter from special counsel Jack Smith, which signals that he's under direct investigation regarding efforts to subvert the results of the 2020 election. Trump's legal team was notified on Sunday, and then he wrote on Truth Social that he had a very short four days to report to the grand jury. He also expressed his indignation, branding the development as horrifying news for our country, and called the special counsel deranged. According to multiple news sources, including the Wall Street Journal, the target letter specified three statutes under which Trump might be charged. They include deprivation of rights, 
conspiracy to commit an offense against or defraud the United States and tampering with a witness. So apparently conspiracy and obstruction of the congressional proceeding on January 6th would fall under the witness tampering law. Uh, Notably, Rolling Stone is reporting that the statutes cited do not include insurrection or sedition. And Trump's legal team spent Tuesday reaching out to his allies in a bid to identify any other recipients of similar target letters. So far, they haven't identified anyone else um, who's received a similar letter. And uh, Susan Del Percio made an interesting point last week, which was pay attention to who isn't charged because that means they've probably flipped. So if these come down, this would be the third set of indictments. And there's two ways of thinking about, you know, how or whether this changes how he's viewed within the GOP. The first is whether they'll have any impact on how his current supporters view him. And the other is whether and how his primary opponents will respond to this. So Frank, why don't we start with you uh, and how you look, look, we don't have any charges yet. Nothing's been handed down, but this is a, this, this is a signal that that is probably coming, could be coming. The question is whether you see this drip, drip, drip as uh, bad news for him, good news for him, uh, or something that's already kind of baked into primary voters' attitudes. And then if you want to take the flip side of that, how do you expect the rest of the primary field to respond uh, if indeed he is charged again on a third set of indictments? Yeah, so politically, again, I, I know I say this often on this podcast, but like set aside the morality of this, the what's right, what's wrong. Um, politically speaking, I, I don't see this as a particular major threat to Trump's ability to win the Republican nomination. There's nothing in the polling over the last couple months um, that indicates that any of this is cutting into his, his lead. Um, whether at a state level or at a federal, uh, at a national level from a polling standpoint. And the folks closest to him in the polling um, aren't particularly using this as a weapon against him. So most notably, um, the governor of Florida is just, you know, he's got a few comments, but he's not Chris Christie. He's not Asa Hutchinson. and, And, you know, he's the only one within striking distance. And so, I don't see when you think about, you know, the 35 percent of the electorate Republican primary base voters that Trump has, there's nothing that I see here that would change their minds. They're they think all of this is a witch hunt, just like they've thought everything else has been a witch hunt. And so, um, you know, are the, is this going to change their minds? I, I don't think so. It, it, you know, it may open up their wallets a little more, um, but I don't see how this in any way, shape, or form changes the trajectory that the current uh, primary is on. Yeah, that's, I would tend to agree with you. And when the first, um, you know, the first indictment came down out of New York, even before that, we were talking about how, you know, all of this really accrues to his benefit. Um, Politically, that is, Uh, you know, in, 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 in legal terms, he's in he's in real jeopardy here. But the question, Andy, I think, is how long can the witch hunt defense hold up? when the charges are coming from one of his own appointees. Um, and we should we should remember and remind everyone that Jack Smith was appointed by Donald Trump. So, you know, politically, I think it's I think it's pretty accurate to say Trump's benefited from these and he's really used them to his advantage. Uh, they underscore his story. Um, but how long how long does that hold up? Well, I think the question embedded in your question is when does the point come in which some of these 
Republican challengers to former President Trump decide to make this an issue? When do they start to talk about the various charges that the former president faces, including potentially by by someone he himself had appointed, as you point out, when do they start to make this an issue? I mean, I, I go back to some polling from late last month that, you know, surveyed people on their feelings about a Trump-Biden rematch in 2024. And one of the big headlines to come out of that was just a sense of exhaustion that the American public perhaps more than any other thing, it just feels exhausted, exasperated by the idea of a 2020 rematch going into 2024. And I'm just waiting to see if a Tim Scott or a Nikki Haley, Asa Hutchinson, et cetera, maybe Ron DeSantis, tries to tap into that a little bit, pointing to these, you know, this increasingly uh, dire legal peril that Trump is facing. And says, look, if you're so exhausted by the prospect of this general election matchup, maybe you should consider someone else, Republican-based voter. I mean, obviously, they're not doing that now. And as Frank pointed out, the polling is very much in Trump's favor at this point. These, you know, The news of these charges or the charges themselves and the places they've been filed have really just played into Trump's hands, strengthened his position, strengthened his support. But why not? try to tap into that fear of exhaustion, that feeling of exhaustion, rather, and try to make that more of an issue. None of the Republicans have seemed to want to do that. Maybe they feel it will just alienate the base and scare people away from them. Uh, but at this point, what is, there, what is there to lose if you're a Tim Scott or a Nikki Haley or, or an Asa Hutchins? Yeah, that's an interesting political question. What is there to lose? I mean, John, John Kasich, former Ohio governor, who's uh, notably not running, called for other Republican candidates to stand up and say something. Um, those are his words about Trump. So what is the political calculus? But there's plenty to lose, right, Ron? I mean, that's the problem is if you're Tim Scott, Nikki Haley, DeSantis, put those three just as a special case for a second. Like you're relatively young in the political world. Now you're like super young, right? Like you might as well be 20. Um, and so like, if Trump gets the nomination and assuming Biden gets the nomination, then we are guaranteed an open field in four years. And so like you have everything to lose. Go look at what John Kasich's doing. I, I can name some other folks who are not running right now. And part of the reason they're not running is because they there is no path for them to run. Um, so I think there's that that you lose is your ability to run in four years. I think the second thing is I think and I remember this from 2015, it's like, yeah, do you want to talk about Trump's shortcomings? Of course you do in the sense of like, you want to knock him down. At the same time, you get in this mindset in this campaign where like, you don't want, you don't want to be Chris Christie in the sense of you don't want to be always talking about Trump and the reporters are going to ask you about Trump. And so then like, you don't want to play into that. So like you then go want to talk about the things you want to talk about. And so it's hard as a messaging item or as a campaign to say, okay, we're going to go after him because going after him means that like we're going to shelve all the pro DeSantis stuff, all the pro Nikki stuff, all the pro Scott stuff, and we're just going to go against him. And that's, um, that's a hard thing to sell because it's, it's hard to believe 
that you can win if you can't make a case for yourself. It's the problem Christie's, I mean, Christie has a thousand problems, but, but if, if the goal for Christie were to get the nomination, he cannot do it simply by attacking Trump. He has to make a case for himself and he's not doing that. And I think that's because Christie's doing this for other reasons. But I think that's why this makes this so hard is every time, if you go look at the DeSantis um, interview with Tapper, it's like every question's about Trump. And so, and so like, yeah, can you, do you want to then go attack him more? Sure. But then now instead of 90% of it being about Trump, now hundred percent is about Trump, which I think as Trump has taught us, accrues to his benefit. Exactly right. <laughs> yeah. Accrues to his benefit. And also if you're going to shoot at the King, you better not miss, then you're inviting oh, his yeah. wrath. Yeah. Right? And, and so the primary voters wrath, right? So then forget whether or not you can run in four years. Like what if you wanted to run for the United States Senate or run for governor. Like you put yourself in this kind of awkward position. Well, there's going to be lots more to come on this story. Um, we can we can be sure. Um, but since we don't have any charges yet, uh, all we really know is that, um, you know, he's he's received a letter and he's done this every time, I think, which is to preempt any announcement of an indictment by telling the world that he's gotten a letter and that, you know, painting himself as a victim. And he's, you know, it's, it's quite effective. I want to move on to the second um, story today, which is rather big. So on Monday, New York Times reporters, Jonathan Swan, Charlie Savage, and Maggie Haberman all together wrote that Donald Trump and his team are planning to drastically overhaul the executive branch if he wins re-election. That's how they're painting it. So the vision they've presented vastly amplifies concentration of presidential power over the machinery of government. Trump's plan, according to their reporting, would see executive branch authority consolidated directly under the president, marking a significant departure from the way the executive branch currently functions. And currently, many parts of the executive branch are uh, what we call independent agencies created and empowered by Congress. And when creating the agencies, Congress delegates a lot of its power to those agencies to make regulations. So on his list is an end to the post-Watergate norm of Justice Department independence from the White House, which is essentially um, would allow him to make good on his promise to order a criminal investigation into Joe Biden if reelected. The plan also includes bringing independent federal agencies such as the Federal Communications Commission and the Federal Trade Commission under his direct control. Those are currently thought of as independent agencies. Trump also aims to revive the practice of impounding funds. Uh, essentially, that means refusing to spend money Congress has allocated for programs that he doesn't like. And this tactic was previously outlawed during Nixon's tenure. They also plan to strip employment protections from tens of thousands of career civil servants, opening the door to stack government with loyalists. Um, this vision is framed as a maximal version or a maximalist version of the unitary executive theory, which is a doctrine that argues that the articles, uh, Article 2 of the Constitution awards the president total control of the executive branch. So the unitary executive theory essentially rejects the idea that Congress can create those independent agencies empower the heads of those agencies, and it restricts the president's ability to fire them. And on several occasions, once in 1935, once in 1988, the Supreme Court um, has upheld Congress's power to shield some executive branch officials from being fired without cause. So the problem I see here is that the size and power of the executive branch has 
really been growing virtually unchecked for decades already, whether uh, the government's been helmed by a Republican or a Democrat. And this is um, uh, Kevin Kosar writing in National Affairs in the fall of 2015. This is like nearly a decade ago. I just want to read you these two graphs. The executive branch's growth in size and influence means more concentrated power and less democratic accountability. Each new exercise of executive power creates precedent to justify its future use. Today, the United States has an executive branch that can do just about anything it pleases over the objections of the people's representatives and sometimes to spectacularly bad effect. Congress has been complicit in its own diminution, but any path to reining in the executive must begin with the legislative branch. The most democratic of the three branches, only Congress has sufficient constitutional power to bring the executive branch to heel. America's founders fled and fought a monarchy, and that is why we have vested so much power in Congress. It's in Article 1 of the Constitution. So, Andy, I want to start with you and um, I wonder how you think about Trump's proposed restructuring of the executive branch and uh, thinking about it in the context of the ever-growing power of the executive uh, authority that he wants to wield. Because, you know, we can we can paint this really dystopian vision of a future Trump presidency and what he plans to do with the power of the executive, but um, it would be uh, essentially on the same trajectory as the size and scope that the branch has been growing in under under both administrations, under under Democrats and Republicans. I just wonder how you think about that. Well, I think about it in two ways. One is thinking about the trajectory, as, you, as you've just described it, of the executive branch accumulating power, accumulating power, using that power and authority, whether it is for foreign policy in military interventions overseas, whether it is for regulation and sort of quasi policy making you know sort of policy making via executive order or regulation on the domestic side this is a trend that has been going on through democratic and republican administrations for yes 10 15 20 years it is a problem not exacerbated by one party or the other it is really a problem for you know the this the system of government we have in this country for for a representative democracy in this country but the second track that i think about is thinking about this kind of unchecked power in the hands of donald trump and this is someone who just i mean you could you could point to so many examples during his presidency but just think about the the actions around the 2020 election sort of linking back to our first question here that is a pretty sobering hypothetical, a future President Trump who comes in and knocks down as many of the remaining checks on executive authority as he can. I mean, there's just, and there's so many pieces of this. You know, he has talked about this, this issue of Schedule F, which would essentially reassign about 50,000 federal government employees who right now are classified more as civil servants um, than, than sort of traditional political appointees, making them uh, at-will employees who can be hired, removed by the executive branch, by, by the White House, by the administration. And doing that as a way to, Trump says, sort of, you know, eliminate the deep state, but in practical terms, you know, sort of gutting a lot of the existing 
manpower, a lot of the existing expertise, experience, and replacing that presumably with uh, political allies. And there is a separate effort underway, um, run mostly out of the Heritage Foundation think tank called Project 2025, which is aiming to recruit, train, and then put in those roles 10,000 sort of like-minded people to implement the president's strategy and to use the agencies of the executive branch to do what the president wants, to direct the Justice Department, the FBI, federal agencies across the board to get in line and do what the president wants. And if that president is President Trump, you know, we're we're really in uncharted territory here because you know, this is a president who I think in his four years showed that he didn't really have either the command of or much respect for the checks and balances system, the checks on executive power, clearly wanted to go further than he could quite often. And, you know, politicizing certain agencies or just getting what he wanted in a raw power kind of way. So you combine those two things, this trend across both parties, all across the spectrum of making the president, making the executive more and more powerful, more and more like a monarch. And then a president, if it was President Trump elected again, who would use every ounce of that power and find new power, you know, it's again, it's that that would be a serious, serious test for our democratic system. There's also the question of how this legal theory would hold up to the scrutiny of the Supreme Court. And um, maybe we'll get to that a little bit later. But first, um, Frank, I want to get your thoughts on this. Uh, and and how how Trump's proposed you know uh, vision here? Well, let, actually, let me just read a few things because I went to the Trump's website um, and I read from this plan, which they call President Trump's plan to shatter the deep state and return power to the American people. And the first few of them are are you know kind of what you would expect, but then as you continue on down the list, like six, eight, nine, and ten, a couple of these sound quite reasonable to me. So I'm going to read them and tell me what you think of them. Number six is make every inspector general's office independent from the departments they oversee so that they do not become protectors of the deep state. Um, uh, Let's see. Number nine, ban federal bureaucrats from taking jobs at the companies they deal with and regulate, such as big pharma. Seems pretty reasonable to me. There are some things in here that aren't crazy, Frank. So how what do you what do you make of this reporting and then more specifically like um some of the some of the items in his plan they're not there by accident yeah, i mean this isn't new right so this is not a trump manufactured thing i mean actually folks from across the spectrum have talked about um restoring the executive branch's ability to manage these agencies in a way that is what they view is in line with article 2 and you know strip away this idea that there's these independent agencies and as they read article 2 it's just to them it's very clear that you know, the FTC for example not that it was around in article 2 but that it it isn't some independent agency that just has no accountability to the executive branch and and to your point Ron of the things you've listed there's plenty of things that um, I think have gotten out of control from the administrative state that n- need to be fixed. The problem is for someone like me, and I think everyone perhaps listening to this is I don't trust President Trump 
to use that power in a um, in a measured way at all. Um, and then the second big fear I have, whether it's Trump or not, is you know I think Congress over the last thirty years has relinquished their power, and so I don't feel very confident that if any executive, whether it was President Bush, President Obama, or President Trump, if they exceed their powers, what I don't see is a strong Congress that's going to stand up and use their power of the purse to do anything about it. And that's, I think, where I have enormous fear. Yeah, I have a lot of concern about that, too. Um, and we should note the, the reason I alluded to the court is because this sort of gets at the crux of um, of what they are calling the major questions doctrine, which is essentially, you know, how much of Congress's authority is Congress actually allowed to delegate instead of actually exercising that authority, that oversight itself? Well, and it's clear, um, right, Ron, and, that this court, we know where they're on this, right? So, right. This yeah. is, you know, what I, you know, I think in a most optimistic way is that we should cue our listeners into that, by the way, what we're, what we're, what we're both nodding about is, yeah, the court's not going to stand for that probably for delegating that much authority. Right. Oh yeah. I mean, I think the court's going to be very happy to have the executive. They're going to read article two, um, the way the heritage foundation reads article two. Like, I, I don't think that's even right. in question. And so, you know, the only upside is does Congress wake up one day and realize that they need to be part of this conversation and they and and what the court has said, right? So if you really read on some of these um major questions issues, it's like they want Congress to act, but they need they want Congress to act every time. They don't want to right, they don't want Congress to do something in 2002 and then allow that to stand for just anything the executive branch wants um, or anything that Congress wants, right? They want an active um, legislative branch. And the truth is we just don't have an active legislative branch, right? We're, we're not going through regular order almost ever. And so, yeah, the executive branch continues to grow because of that. So I think, Andy, there's a question here about um, whether, let's say, congressional Democrats uh, who would be right to be fearful, we all should be fearful, in my view, of a, of a President Trump with unchecked executive authority, um, and whether they should be moving to constrain executive power at this point before that possibility is sort of imminently upon us. Um, and there are things they could absolutely do that would constrain the power of the executive broadly. Um, but the problem is there probably isn't any political will right now to do that while President Biden is in office. And, um, you know, for for example, there's a, there's a bill called the RAINS Act, R-E-I-N-S, uh, which has been the subject of really hot debate over the last several decades. I mean, it's kind of, it's just been reintroduced again, I think, this year in the House and passed. But it stands for the um, huh, Regulations of the Executive in Need of Scrutiny Act. And essentially what it would do is uh, require Congress to uh, approve or vote on within 60 days or something like that of any new major regulation that was, uh, that was proposed by a federal agency, forcing Congress to weigh in on, um, on the rules the executive branch 
uh, agencies pass. And um, and it looks like from my cursory review that historically only a handful of Democrats have been on board with this idea, and mostly Republicans uh, have been pushing for it. And a lot of the rhetoric uh, surrounding it had to do with either you know regulation good or regulation bad, and that's what it broke down to. When in fact this had you know there was a much bigger, richer conversation to be had here about the separation of powers, and so. With this reporting now, headline news on the New York Times uh, and some some really uh, reputable, well-respected reporters on this, whether you think there will be any new uh, interest among Democrats um, to address executive authority before the 2024 election? It's hard to see that happening. I mean, with, with the Democrats, uh, you know, they like to talk about how and out of you know, an out of check executive authority is in principle a bad thing. But when it's a democratic administration using the Clean Air Act or the Clean Water Act to, you know, do bills that are that are decades and decades old to address more recent problems, finding new interpretations of those kinds of pieces of legislation to advance their policy agenda. You're not going to get Democrats standing up and saying, well, yes, the administration wants to regulate coal plants in a much more rigorous way, according to the Clean Air Act. But, you know, we really have concerns about the executive authority here. I mean, that's just not <laughs> that's, that's not where the Democratic Party is. It really is, you know, a sort of a principled stand that crumbles in the face of actual policy ideas or actual regulatory actions that whether it's the Obama administration or now the Biden administration has taken. I, you know, I don't know what it would take short of an actual new Trump administration or a future Mm -hmm. Republican administration, um, really doing something that just sort of shocks the conscience that, that just is such an egregious, um, use of executive power to get Democrats behind it, but then you probably won't get Republicans for the same problem I just said about yeah. Democrats. So it's it, it's hard to see a way out of this. Uh, it feels like a sort of one-way ratchet here where each party is, you know, aggrieved about it when their presidential yeah. candidate is not in the White House, but they can live with it when one of their allies is. And and, and I don't I don't think that this particular these particular revelations in the reporting, as sobering as they are, are really going to move yeah. the Democrats in Congress. Yeah. Um, we should note Biden hasn't attempted <laughs> to take over independent agencies, plus anyone be right. There's this, uh, the way he has governed is not comparable to what we are suggesting Trump would do, but he has tried to expand executive authority. And, you know, like for example, the student loan debt forgiveness plan is a, a an obvious example, which the Supreme court struck down as we know. Um, uh, but yeah, Democrats haven't worked to constrain the executive and they haven't really put any political capital behind legislation to to limit the executive branch. And actually, when Biden was elected into office, that was one of the first things I was hoping he might do, having then seen all of the vulnerabilities we have to an unchecked uh, executive with a madman in the Oval Office. And, um, and, and of course, they didn't do that. Um, and I think this goes to your point about it being a problem with the system of government we have, but I think maybe more it's a problem with humans because <laughs> any, right? It's a it's a 
problem with the nature of the role. Once you're in power, you're going to um, try and seize as much power for that role as possible to do to execute the agenda that you um, that you promised. So um, let's let me pivot just a little bit. The Times um, regularly publishes opinion pieces by Thomas Edsel where he writes about uh, what a, a bunch of experts think about a particular topic. This week, he wrote about a piece about gut-level partisan hatred. And one of the things he noted is that as the two major parties have shifted further apart and calcified, the stakes of elections feel even higher because the, quote, other side wants to build a world that is quite different from the one your side wants to build, end quote. And concentrating presidential authority, as we're talking about, uh, like this could make it a lot easier to make changes to the way government functions. Um, and so I wonder, Frank, um, what do you think that would mean for the intense partisanship we're already seeing? I mean, unfortunately, it, it, it's just going to get worse. I mean, there's just no, there's really no incentive from a political standpoint to not do that, right? I mean, um, the way the primary systems are set up, um, it's just, you know, most members of Congress have more threat from their own party than they do from the opposing party when it comes to election. And, and therefore, mm-hmm. it, you know, it, the incentive is to drive you as close to your primary voter as you can get. And the primary voter by nature is on the far side of that spectrum. And that's um, none of this is going to help that. Um, clear problem that we are we're facing that we've been facing but it's only going to make it worse um okay so against this backdrop i want to sort of offer up a specific example um that i'm watching closely which is this unfolding julian assange case um and if listeners aren't familiar with it it offers a stark illustration i think of the necessity for independence within some executive branch agencies. Uh, so let me break it down a little bit. Earlier this month, Rolling Stone reported that the DOJ and the FBI have been applying pressure, um, and that might be putting it euphemistically, on multiple British journalists seeking their cooperation in the prosecution of WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange. Um, Assange is currently fighting extradition from Britain to the United States, charged with participating in a hacking-related conspiracy and publishing classified diplomatic and military secrets. And these charges relate to the classified videos and documents published by WikiLeaks in 2010 and 2011, uh, provided by former Army intelligence analyst Chelsea Manning. Now, the Obama administration initially considered charging Assange, and it decided not to because they were concerned about the First Amendment implications. And the administration refrained because of the difficulties in legally distinguishing WikiLeaks' actions from those of traditional news organizations. It it went way too close to to the line. And in stark contrast, uh, Trump's Department of Justice did secure an indictment against Assange in 2018, and uh, that was... uh, for alleged hacking-related offenses. And then under Bill Barr, the Department of Justice also secured an indictment for publishing the information on the the Espionage Act. So this is the first attempt. I need to like underscore this, put an exclamation point here. This is the very first attempt in U.S. history to prosecute 
the publisher of information. Uh, And despite a change in administrations, the extradition efforts have continued under the Biden administration, uh, being led now by Attorney General Merrick Garland. Um, So, Andy, you obviously know about this story uh, very well. You were nodding as I brought it up. So um, as you think about Trump's antipathy, let's say, for journalists, uh, and his attempt to consolidate power. We all remember the famous line, we're going to open up the libel laws so you can sue the media, right? Um, particularly his power over the Justice Department. How concerned are you about this? And how concerned do you think um, Americans need to be about this? And uh, and do you think maybe more scrutiny ought to be put on this case? Oh my gosh, yes. I mean, we could do a whole... Yeah. Roundup about take it away. This I mean, case this is a, to me, this Assange. is a big deal. Yeah, it's a, it's weird. It's a it's a huge deal, but it's something that has simmered on a back burner. The heat's gone up, the heat's gone down, but it has always been there simmering away. Um, God for you know 10, 12, 13 years now. I mean, it feels weird to imagine a political landscape that doesn't have Julian Assange or WikiLeaks in it. Um, it's a it's a really tough, complicated case that I do fear could have very direct implications on my ability to do my job, other journalists' ability to do their job, and especially our the 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 space that we need to hold powerful people, especially governments, accountable for the things that they do in our name and with our taxpayer money. You know, it, it, it's complicated because if you look at the charges filed against Assange uh, in 2019, I believe it was, they're very specific. This was in the Trump years, obviously. They're very specific. And there are there's specific description there of how Julian Assange, founder of WikiLeaks, helped Chelsea Manning um, in 2010, I believe it was, um, crack a password at the Department of Defense to access um, confidential information, classified information. You know, the, the, the information that Manning gave to Assange ended up as this collateral murder um, uh, footage of you know, an American uh, plane, a helicopter plane, American uh, aircraft in Iraq that was firing on people uh, on the ground. Uh, two of them, I believe, were were journalists for Reuters. Um, you know, as a journalist, you cannot, a journalist and a publisher, you can't help a source or instruct a source to break the law for you. You can't ask them or help them to crack a password or something like that. That's not how our that's not how our job works. You're not protected if you do that, and it's something that you learn very very early on um, in this line of work. And that is what the government alleges that Assange did. And it's something that you cannot do. So on that particular point, this whole issue is a bit uh, it's a bit more complicated than it's been made out to be. However, if you look at the sort of totality of what the U.S. government is accusing Assange and WikiLeaks of doing and the potential 
consequences of that, the way that a, a criminal case against Assange could be um, applied going forward, there are real implications there. It could cause real problems for journalists, especially journalists who cover national security issues, journalists who have incredible sources and are tenacious about what they do and maybe uh, rely on people giving them access to classified information to to, uh, hold powerful agencies to account and to inform the public about what those agencies are doing in our name. So, you know, Assange, uh, you know, I wrote about him in my book because he, he had a bit of a, clearly he was a player in 2016 and had a bit of a role in the whole Seth Rich story, uh, a pretty um, uh, contemptible role from my point of view and from a lot of people's point of view. But, you know, just because he might not be the most sympathetic person does not mean that his case doesn't have problems and couldn't have major ramifications. We've seen major news organizations in this country, including the New York Times, publish letters saying that they think oh. the pursuit of Assange is problematic. And the stuff that is in this Rolling Stone article by James Ball, oh, a man, British it's a journalist. great story. It's yeah, a great story. He, I've interviewed James before. You know, he was a former associate of Assange's um, at WikiLeaks, and then has since sort of left and spoken out a bit critically about how Julian Assange operated. The things that Ball says about the British about British law enforcement working with American law enforcement and trying to, you know, com- not compel him, but sort of pressure him into testifying when Ball is a journalist um, mm. are really problematic. And I-, I can't imagine those agencies wanted that stuff to become public. Yeah. I'm glad that James did come forward and, and, and um, shine some light on that because that, that stuff, what he says they tried to do to say, what they said to him and try to get him to do, I thought was, if yeah. it didn't and, cross the line, it certainly walked right up and, to it. And the stuff they said to his lawyer too, which was which was really disturbing. And he obviously, you know, reported these things at significant risk to himself, um, given the sensitivity of the story and the prosecution. So, yeah, I would suggest uh, our listeners go take a read to this. But it's not simple. It is complicated, but it has enormous. Um, potential ramifications if this goes through. And we should note the charge currently, I'll just reiterate, that um, was secured uh, under bar has to do with the act of publishing the information, not the hacking. And they're charging him under the Espionage Act um, again. So yeah, um, very, very, very complicated. But um, again, I think this story just underscores the importance of of strong checks on executive authority. And um, uh, let's leave that there for today. On Tuesday, Bloomberg reported that the Department of Health and Human Services has informed the Wuhan Institute of Virology that the Biden administration has formally cut off their access to U.S. funding and is looking to make this permanent. This comes in the wake of an HHS review initiated in September, which found that the facility was breaching biosafety protocols and failing to comply with U.S. regulations. And in addition to these breaches, the funding termination is reportedly linked to the lab's failure to share vital information 
amid ongoing investigations into the origins of COVID-19. So from 2014 to July of 2020, the Wuhan Institute of Virology had received more than $1.4 million in federal funds. And uh, the director of the FBI, Christopher Wray, among others, has proposed the possibility that COVID-19 could have originated from the lab. So has the Department of Energy. However, it's important to note that the U.S. has not found any conclusive evidence to confirm whether the virus emerged through animal-to-human transmission or a lab accident. It's still very much a gigantic question mark. Um, And despite this, the HHS review did uncover considerable breaches in safety and security protocols at the lab, resulting in the U.S. accusing China and the lab of obstructing investigations into these shortcomings, we'll call them. Further, the Office of the Director of National Intelligence, DNI, recently published a declassified report highlighting security issues that could potentially increase the risk of accidental exposure to viruses. Um, So the lack of transparency, coupled with the biosafety concerns, has raised a lot of eyebrows and opened the door for a lot more discussions uh, and also conspiracies about the origin of the pandemic. And we haven't had a lot of conversations in dominant media that take the possibility that COVID originated in a lab seriously. And that makes it easier for people who already don't trust government to see this halting of funds as a smoking gun when it really isn't. Um, It opens the door for people who make unfounded claims about the virus to gain a foothold. And right on cue over the weekend, uh, the New York Post shared a video of Democratic presidential contender Robert F. Kennedy Jr., suggesting that COVID-19 might be, quote, uh, an ethnically targeted bioweapon designed to, quote, attack Caucasians and Black people while leaving Ashkenazi Jews and Chinese people relatively immune. Um, And just to be clear, this claim not only lacks scientific grounding, but uh, it also really dangerously plays on people's fear. Um, However, (laughs) there has been a push to create bioweapons that can target individuals using DNA Uh, and even specific racial groups. Earlier this year, the Chinese government accused the DOD of making race-specific bioweapons to target Chinese citizens. So, um, God, there's so many questions here. Uh, There's so many questions here. I don't even know where to start. Um, Frank, let me start with you. First of all, what did you think of this new revelation? And how do you think the government has handled the inquiry into the origin of COVID-19 writ large? Yeah, so I, I, this may not be a popular point of view, but like, I actually think from a government standpoint, I think they've handled this fairly well um, in terms of review um, and a measured approach with something that's incredibly, from a diplomatic standpoint, an incredibly tricky thing to do dealing with, um, you know, our potentially our biggest adversary. And so I've actually been fairly pleased with the the path that the government's taken. I, I don't tend to think that their PR execution of this has been done particularly well. I don't think the press has handled this well. But I think um, the administration, both administrations, I, I don't think have done a particularly poor job of trying to figure this out and doing this in a um, measured way. I would like, I would have preferred I would like to see Congress play more of a role, but I worry that because of the partisan nature, I don't think that's going to happen. I don't think we're going to get a 9-11 such commission where 
you know, there was real thorough nonpartisan work that went into that um, exhaustive report. But I, I actually think this is fine um, the way this is handled. I think uh, politically, I think, it, yeah, as you said, Ron, I mean, I think this just is going to, you know, get folks on both sides um, charged up about this even more, which is that is not great for our politics. Yeah, it's so funny you mentioned the 9-11 Commission because I wrote in my notes, that's exactly what I wish we had for this because it feels like we need for something as significant as a pandemic that killed millions and millions and millions of people around the world. It seems like we should, you know, put together a bipartisan commission to find out exactly how it happened. Yeah, I agree. It's so hard because the, you know, expecting transparency out of um, the Chinese government is, you know, not the same as trying it, not that it's hard in the United States, but it's a, that's a different thing than trying to understand what was going with the FAA that you know fateful morning or understanding what and when the Pentagon knew what right that's that's hard enough but expecting to get um folks in Beijing to cooperate you know is a whole different game so Andy I have a pair of questions I guess I would love for you to address, and this is kind of tangled, but given the ongoing investigations and the lack of definitive evidence, there's a question here about how to navigate the fine line between really valid and urgent and important questions about the pandemic's origins and the unfounded conspiracy theories, and how do we treat good faith questions with respect um, and sincerity and not devolve into accusations of like, oh, well, you are just a tinfoil hat wearing conspiracy theorist and exit stage right. Um, so, so that's one question, which is like, where where is the line between a theory and a conspiracy theory? And especially when we don't have answers um, and there's reasonable uh, there's lots of room for reasonable disagreement about, you know, where, where this thing could have come from. And then the second question, and I'm sorry to like layer them on, but maybe you want to think about them together is what's the media's responsibility here? Um, because as I see it, you know, the institution of journalism, we call it the fourth estate because it's there to hold power to account. It's as you so eloquently said in our last segment, we had this discussion about why an independent media that is, that is holding those in power accountable um, is so essential to a functioning democracy. And there's a problem of incentives here when all of these institutions, whether it's the Wuhan Institute of Virology and China and the CCP or the NIH or the EcoHealth Alliance, um, uh, which received U.S. funding, like all of these institutions have an incentive to hide embarrassing information or information that would be unflattering, especially if it looked like it might have something to do with the origin of the pandemic. And so the question is, what should we be expecting from journalists, from media? Because I think we should be expecting more than we've gotten from them, which has been um, really to brush off any uh, insinuation that the pandemic could have come from a lab. I think that's the starting point for what we should expect from our fourth estate when it comes to any of these big consequential issues, the origins of the the coronavirus being 
at or near the top of that list. You know, I think there used to be this um, phrase that got tossed around. Um, I feel like this is sort of like a product of like the 2000s called um, like gaming the refs or working the refs. It was sort of used in media critic circles of, you know, when um, you know, partisans or spokespeople or activists or whatever on one side or the other would would kind of pressure reporters or editors or lodge complaints or whatever, just to try to, to try to, to push them away or push them toward a certain finding in their reporting or a certain headline or, or away from a subject, whatever, you know? And I feel like in some ways, social media, especially Twitter, which journalists I've really come to believe spent too much time on. And maybe in some ways, Twitter's, Twitter's uh, uh, slow motion demise is, is good for that reason. You know, Twitter is just sort of like a constant machine of, of gaming the refs, or if not gaming the refs, shaping how reporters are thinking about and reporting out the stories that they're working on. I think if you look at the actual journalism that at least, you know, reputable news organizations with published ethics codes and um, professional journalists uh, have done about the pandemic, I at least think you will find, you'll find mistakes for sure. And you will find some, um, I think you'll find some overcorrections uh, in the wrong direction. But I do think you find people trying to get to the truth of what happened. I think there were some misses in the COVID context. I think the school closures stuff and the effect on really young people um, was it was too hyperbolic in the you know sort of pro closure pro shutdown direction. But on the lab leaks subject and on the origin subject, you know, I think that I mean ProPublica has tried to do this, um, and I think that. The Post and the Times and others, uh, I think maybe in the beginning, were a little too shaped by the online conversation about this, but I think have since tried to correct in the other direction and do better journalism uh, on this subject. And, and that journalism, which I think gets to your second, or I guess was, that was your first question, just answering your second <laughs> I question. Track, I lost track of them too. In reverse order here. <laughs> make things nice and simple. Um, you know, you have to tune out all of the noise, whether it seems to agree with your gut or not. And you have to follow the actual evidence where it leads. And, you know, I think if that is the safety history of the Wuhan Institute for Virology, or if that is the connections between, you know, State Department grants and EcoHealth Alliance and the WIV, you know, the, the actual breadcrumbs were there the whole time. And there was real investigative reporting to be done. And I think it took a little longer than it should have in, in, in some instances. But, the, uh, the, you know, again, the, the, the reporting was there to be done. And I think if there was an error, it was that journalists were, you know, they, we talk about this idea of the narrative. You know, what is the narrative? And you know, competing narratives, et cetera. You know, I've come to hate that word because it's, it's the narrative is just, you know, so often one side's argument that suits their 
political worldview, their partisan affiliation, whatever, you have to set aside this notion of the narrative and go where the evidence is, go where the information is, the verifiable information is. And if that information points toward, hey, there is a possibility that this global pandemic could have spilled out of this laboratory that was just so happened to be located in what we widely believe to be the origin point of this global pandemic, then you need to follow that evidence. Even if it makes people on Twitter mad, I mean, you really shouldn't think about whether it makes people on Twitter or Facebook, whatever, the people who you know live on your block, wherever it is you reside, whether it you know upsets them. You know, that is when you start buying into narratives. And I think it's a constant, it's a constant um, practice as a reporter, at least it is for me to always, you know, it's not about the, the two sides' arguments and their narratives. It is about what the documents say or what the people who are in the room recall, as many of them hopefully as possible. Um, and if you can stick to that, I feel like even on these incredibly thorny, complicated subjects like the origins of COVID. Again, the information was there to be to be gotten. <laughs> the stories were there to be written. I think uh, reporters were maybe a little little bit late to do that, but I think that the reporting is catching up now in a way that m- better reflects what our intelligence agencies think, what the scientific experts think, what we know about this laboratory in Wuhan. So maybe a little slow to the party, but I feel like trying to catch up to where things should be now. Ron, can I ask Andy, Andy a question? Please, yeah. Andy, you know this so much better than I do, um, and I love hearing your point of view on this. Um, how, what impact do you think, like the hollowing out of journalism, right, from the the fact that um, it's gotten more consolidated um, and fewer dollars are flowing into it? What impact that has on things like this? I would also add to that the changing distribution models, if you could call them that, right? I mean, the, the, the distribution piece, I mean, the money piece is, is, is obvious. Um, and, and I feel it very fortunately on the other side, working at ProPublica, which is, you know, those breadcrumbs, those bits of evidence I mentioned just a second ago are out there, but usually the best ones, the most important ones are the hardest ones to find. And it just takes time to do that. It just takes time. And sometimes it takes time for a bunch of people. And, uh, you know, that takes money. It's just, it's not that complicated of a formula in, in, in this context. And if you are telling people that they don't have the, either they, they, they have to produce more often and they don't, they're not allowed the time or there's just not the money to hire the people to do the work that takes time, stories about like the origins of COVID just don't happen. Plain and simple. And then the other piece is the distribution pieces, and this one I definitely have felt, is, um, you know, when Facebook was the sort of distribution engine for a lot of media, Facebook was about pushing people to the extremes. It rewarded um, hot takes and takedowns and salacious headlines and sort of amping up the outrage and turning down the... um, the 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 sort of more more nuanced um compl- complex view of something like the the lab leak issue um i don't you know facebook is now sort of just moving away from this altogether and i'm not quite sure what comes in its wake twitter kind of suffered from the same problem obviously but 
not quite to the same degree because it's not quite as not nearly as big. But you have these large dynamics working against the kind of institutions, media institutions, and the sort of atmosphere that reward the kind of reporting or that produced is a better word reporting like the kind of reporting we needed sooner on the COVID um, origin story. You know, it's, it's, it doesn't quite grab people in the current model to say like this intelligence agency has um, a medium degree of confidence. This one has a low degree of confidence. It's important to hold these all together. This is what a zoonotic spillover means. This is what eco health Alliance was, you know, there it, we're not in a place right now where that kind of journalism is elevated above something like, you know, public health scientist slams, uh, you know, expert who says that it could have been elite, you know, so it's a, it's a, it's a tough time for journalism on these complicated, not cut and dried black and white stories, but you know, the world's complicated and, no one is served from the sort of takedown hot take version of something like, uh, you know, the origins of a pandemic. So, yeah. When I first learned that the person who writes the headline is not the person who wrote the story, my like, like blew my mind. <laughs> yeah, but but the here's the wrinkle. Here's the wrinkle to that, though. That is sometimes true still, but it is often not true at newer, more digital centric mm. news organizations. I know that because I've worked at them and there have been times when I've worked at an organization where as a reporter, you are expected to help write the headline. And frankly, that exercise can contribute to this push toward the extreme. And it's not necessarily pushed toward a, a, a left or a right extreme, but just like a Less outraged, yeah, yeah, more outraged to sort of a behavioral lizard brain extreme. Um, and I, you know, I could, I could feel that affecting how I would think about my stories sometimes. And, and again, that was another thing where it's like, wow, okay, like shake it off, go walk around outside for a minute, like remember why it is you do what you do. Um, I think like at the New York Times and the Post and the Journal, other people write the headlines, but at a lot of other places, the reporters either write them or help write them. And I don't know if that's a good thing because then you start thinking in headlines and mm, then yeah. I, just, I just think that's not great for the work, but I'm going to get off my yeah. soapbox. now. <laughs> no, it's, it's, this is a really, I think this is a really good insight um, that people don't get to hear very often. That was a good question, Frank. All right, guys, let's uh, move to look aheads. Now that we're up to speed on some of the biggest stories this week. What, are you watching frank uh, i'm watching the chinese economy um you know as as we learned in the 90s um it's the economy stupid that that's true diplomatically true um and you know the chinese are facing some real tough economic issues right now um and it impacts everything from you know their relationship with us to their relationship with uh taiwan Russia, it, you know, it has a massive effect. So it'll be interesting to see um, in the coming months if they can um, right the ship or if or if they're facing more um, 
dire problems because that will just have a major impact on so many different things that that we care about um, and that impacts our lives. Huge. Andy, what do you got? I am watching what a friend and journalist wrote about today, which is uh, what, my, what what Josh Idelson in Bloomberg called the summer of strikes. Ooh. We've got the strike in Hollywood, strikes in Hollywood. The The actors recently joined the writers and Hollywood is not entirely at a standstill, significantly slowed down. We have the prospect of a strike at UPS and other rumblings across the economy. And I'm really keen to see whether we see more actions like this across the U.S. economy and how that plays with this potential soft landing for the economy as the Fed has fought um, inflation and you know seems to be making some progress in that direction, fighting inflation, taming inflation without tipping the economy into a recession. But what do these labor actions mean for that? What do they, what effect do they have on an economy that feels like it's almost sort of in the clear, but again, still potentially tipping into um, what the economists would classify a recession? It's going to be a long, hot, uh, tumultuous summer um, in a lot of ways. Yeah, it is. I'm I'm paying close attention to the writer's strike. We're going to talk about it next week. But from the, I mean, I'm interested in it because of what the you know the implications of AI and sort of the the really fundamental questions that it's raising. Uh, which you know this the the writer strikes more than just a classic union fight, union labor fight. There's a lot more tangled up in it. So. Yeah, that's a. We almost talked about it this week, but um, I want to let it develop a little bit more. Um, I just uh, have this one quick thing to mention, which is that I am paying attention to the uh, to what's happening in Israel, but what's happening here uh, in response to what's happening in Israel, and um, the House just passed a resolution uh, supporting Israel and condemning anti-Semitism. And it passed overwhelmingly 412 votes to nine. And the only no votes on this um, congressional resolution were AFC, Rashida Tlaib, Jamal Bowman, Summer Lee, Ilan Omar, Cory Bush, Andre Carson, Delia Ramirez, Ayanna Presley, uh, Betty McCollum voted present. All of these members uh, are in the Progressive Caucus. And that's all I got. Gang, before we flip over to Politicology Plus, where Molly McHugh will join us to discuss the end of the grain deal in Ukraine. Where can everybody find you on the internet, Andy? I would, I'm would. i not really doing Twitter that much anymore. I mean, I'm there <laughs> at Andy Kroll, but honestly, just go check out ProPublica.org. I think you will find the kind of journalism that I was preaching <laughs> at, at length. <laughs> earlier uh, on our site uh there so go check it out indeed and frank's probably still not on the internet or at least not i, mean, I use on the i use the internet i just not everyone needs to hear my point of view um 
So no, I don't have social stuff or whatever it's called. You're smart, Frank. Very smart. Very smart. All right, guys. Uh, let's go to Politicology Plus. Thank you to everyone at home and on the go for listening. If you haven't yet, we'd appreciate it if you could open up the Apple Podcasts app and give us a five-star rating and review over there. This helps us rise in the rankings so that new people can discover Politicology organically. If you have questions about anything we've talked about, you can reach us, as always, at podcast at politicology.com. And even when we can't respond, we do read everything you send us, whether it's an episode idea, a guest recommendation, or just a simple note about how the show has impacted you. And we love hearing from you. I'm Ron Steslow. I'll see you in the next episode. <laughs>